Welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. This week on Southcrest Live with Dr. David Wilson, we come to the second installment of our sermon series, Reflecting on Christ's Sermon on the Mount. Last week's message addressed the poor in spirit. The natural progression of one poor in spirit is mourning over one's sin, which leads us to this week's message. Open your Bible to Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, and let's explore the comfort for those who mourn as we hear... From sadness to gladness, from Pastor David Wilson. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We have begun a study of the Sermon on the Mount, but the first part of this we've called blessed. Because each of the Beatitudes, as we call them, start with the word blessed. We make it sound a little more holy by saying blessed. But it's really the word blessed. I mean, that's the only time we use the ED that way. I, I mentioned last week, you don't say, I, my hair got messed up this week or I got dressed this morning. You, we're blessed. And the word blessed is, is more than just happy. Some people translate this just being happy. It's more than being happy. I want to read, these, these are progressive. They, they build upon one another. So I want to read verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. See, I said blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What would it take to make you happy today? Well, that's some question to ask on a day when you lost an hour of sleep. So one more hour of sleep might have made you happy this morning. Psychology Today Asked 52,000 Americans what it would take to make them happy. Here are some of the answers in order. Friends or social life. Job. Being in love. Recognition and success. Sex. Personal growth. Good financial situation. House or apartment. Being attractive or beautiful. Health. The city I live in. Religion, exercise and recreation, marriage, or our partner's happiness. If you look in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, you're going to find that Solomon, he, he basically looked for happiness in three areas. He tried accumulating wealth or material things. He tried finding it in pleasure. He tried, you know, he had the money to do anything he wanted to do, so he could go to all of the Disneylands in that time that there were. And, and then he tried by acquiring success, but he found every one of them a dead end. Many years ago, they asked the billionaire, Howard Hughes, what would it take to make a man happy? And he said, just a little more. Tony Campolo once made the observation that in many cultures around the world, parents raise their children with the mindset to be successful, to work hard, and to achieve. Other nations, children are taught the value of studying and diligently preparing for the future. But he also observed that in American culture, 
it's totally different. More than anything, we want our children to avoid difficulty and hardship and be happy. How many times have kids asked their parents, what, do you, what should we be when we grow up? What should we do with our lives? And parents respond by saying, do whatever makes you happy. Why not? After all, it's in the founding document of our nation the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So we live in a culture that's made the pursuit of happiness its chief goal in life. We're pleasure mad. We avoid problems. We run from difficulties. We despise troubles. We don't want to deal with things that make us unhappy. People change churches because they're unhappy. People change jobs because they're unhappy. People change marriages because they're unhappy. Life is hard enough. And our society said, forget your troubles. Turn your back on them. Do everything you can not to face them. Sorrow is bad. Happy is good. Don't worry be happy. I didn't even have to tell you that, did I? <laughs> Here, the word blessed is the word makarios. We looked at this word last week. Makarios can be translated happy, but not the kind of happiness that you're thinking about. Because the most of the happiness that we think about is dependent on our circumstances. If things are going well, I'm happy. If everybody likes me, I'm happy. If I've got enough to eat, I'm happy. If I've got enough money and so forth, it's usually our circumstances. But the happiness here is much deeper than that. It really talks of a contentment, a fulfillment, a completion. It talks about a joy that is given to someone that is not dependent on outward circumstances. It's a joy that the world did not give you and the world and all its circumstances cannot take away from you. It also means to be approved by God. And so when Jesus begins this by saying, Macarius are those, blessed are those, approved by God are those. And we begin by looking at the word takkos, which meant bankrupt in spirit, poor in spirit, beggarly poor. There were three words for poor in the New Testament. This is the one for beggarly poor. I told you last week it was not used of the widow who gave her only two mites in the offering. She was in poverty. She was poor, but she was not begging poor. This word means that you are literally spiritually bankrupt when you come to God. You weren't about 25% saved when you came to Jesus. And a lot of people sitting in church think, well, I know Jesus saved me, and I know I was a sinner saved by grace, but I was about, you know, a quarter of the way along before, and, and Jesus just had to save me 75%. No, you were 100% lost, 100%, and nothing in you could bring you to God. Bankrupt. You were spiritually bankrupt when you came to God. And God said that only those, theirs and theirs alone, are the kingdom of heaven. So when you come to God and you realize, you realize I'm spiritually bankrupt, that brings you to the point where you have to trust in God 
in Jesus Christ to be saved. That's why it's so hard for religious people to be saved because they're trusting in their religion. Now, we, we take another word today, and the word is pentheo. We go, blessed are the ones who are mourning. Mourn. It naturally follows being bankrupt in spirit. So, first of all, I want you to notice the recognition of mourning. There are nine different words, Greek words in the New Testament that are translated mourn. This is the strongest one. It speaks of somebody who is it's the most heartfelt grief and, uh, that a, a person could experience. Many times it's used for the loss of a loved one. You, you, the deepest kind of mourning. It's, it described the disciples when they were mourning over the death of Jesus before he was resurrected. We see this often when somebody dies. We mourn their loss. It's the kind of mourn that is felt all the way into the soul. it's, it's It's a sorrow. Jesus is saying here, blessed are those who mourn. Now, that sounds exactly the opposite. And sometimes this verse is taken to be used at a funeral. has nothing to do well, it, not, not in its context. Obviously, at a funeral, if you're a believer and, and somebody's died in the Lord, the Lord comforts you. I know that, but that's not what this verse means. It's read at a funeral a lot. And God does comfort us. Don't misunderstand me. But that's not what this is talking about. He's talking about a godly sorrow over sin. Because when you realize you're spiritually bankrupt and you have no hope of coming to God on your own and nothing in you can save you, then you realize you are destitute. You begin to mourn because you have no hope. You begin to cry. You begin to wail. That's the, that's the word used. Listen to 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10 and 11. It says, for godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things you proved yourself to be clear in this matter. This is the sorrow that leads to spiritual commitment. It's the sorrow that says, God, I'm so ashamed. I'm so remorseful over my sin that separated me from you. That's what he's talking about. It's a sorrow for our sin. Kent Hughes wrote a book about the Sermon on the Mount. And in that book, he asked this question, in our hearts, what do we weep about? What do we laugh about? Then he asserts true Christianity manifests itself in what we cry over and what we laugh about. And it's a present participle, which means a continuous action. There are those who continually mourn, who are, but they're continually comforted. John Stott put it this way. He said, it's one thing to be spiritually poor and acknowledge it. It's another thing to grieve and mourn over it. Confession is one thing, 
Contrition is another. And he's right. Contrition or sorrow over our sins leads us to repentance. It pushes us to cry out to God for forgiveness. That's what real mourning is. That's what he's talking about. He said, first of all, those who are spiritually bankrupt, theirs and theirs alone will be the kingdom of God. Only those who come with complete trust in Jesus Christ are going to go to the kingdom of God, are, are going to be saved. And he said, and this, this spiritual bankruptcy leads you to mourn, to be remorseful, to be sick of your sin. So let's talk about the reasons for mourning. I've heard people say, you know, I feel so bad about this sin that I'm not even sure I'm a Christian. But the truth is just the opposite. Because you're a Christian, you're going to feel worse about your sin than an unbeliever would. Because you have the Holy Spirit in your life, you're going to feel worse about your sin. Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher of the 1700s, said, I have, I have had vastly greater sense of my own wickedness since I became a Christian and the badness of my heart than I ever had before my conversion. And the older I get, the more I realize just how sinful a person I was, still have a tendency to be, and yet God forgave me of my sin. We sort of take sin lightly. <laughs> One man heard a sermon on the Ten Commandments, and after the sermon, he walked by the pastor, and he said, well, pastor, at least I've never made any graven images. <laughs> and do you, ever, do you ever find a humor? I don't have a lot to laugh about today, so here's your chance. It's, it's too serious of a subject. But do you ever find humor in advertisements by the way that people word things? There was a newspaper that had an advertisement from a department store, and here's what it said. For sale at reduced prices, shirts for men with minor flaws. Folks, we have more than minor flaws. We have major flaws. We have a sinful nature. And in, the, in this society, we have become, young people, listen to me, you have been desensitized to sin. And so have adults. It's not just young people. It's all of us. We joke about things that we shouldn't joke about. We joke about divorce. We joke about brutality. We're intrigued by all kinds of sexual immorality. And we laugh when we should be mourning. We laugh when we should be crying. And there's sin all around us. And people are involved in sin. And they don't even think about it. In our, I want you to ask yourself this question. Am I even sensitive to sin? Or do I laugh at it? I laugh at all the stuff that's on television that is immoral. I laugh at all of that. I'm even involved in sin that I really don't take that seriously. There's several reasons that we should mourn over our sin. The first one is the very presence of sin in our life. You want to know why a lot of people don't want to come to church? Well, there's a lot of reasons. But one reason is if a person has been attending a church where they're going to talk about sin, they don't want to come because they're uncomfortable. They don't want to deal with it. 
When Isaiah had a vision of God, it's just recorded in Isaiah 6, he saw the angels crying out, holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty. And the very first response when Isaiah saw God or saw that vision of God high and lifted up, he said, woe is me for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He saw the vision of God and was immediately convicted of his sin. And there's a lesson there, genuine, a genuine encounter with Jesus, a genuine encounter with God always convicts a person of their sin, always. That's why you've heard me say being saved didn't just be just praying a prayer. Obviously, you ask Christ to come in and live in you. But until you realize you're spiritually bankrupt, until you realize that your sin has separated you from God, then you have no, no opportunity to really understand what's going on because you are committing your life to, to Jesus and only he can take care of your sin. But you have, pres- you have sin in your life. We just make light of it now. It's always somebody else's fault. I, I read a, a, an instance about Frederick the Great. The Emperor Frederick, Frederick the Great was visiting the Potsdam prison. And every man that he interviewed as he was walking through the prison declared their innocence. What, they would say they were victims of a frame-up. Some said someone else was blaming. Right after one, right after another, it's not my fault. I'm here. It's not my fault. Finally, he came to one cell, and the fellow didn't even look up. He had his head hanging down, never looked up, and he said, Your Majesty, I am guilty and richly deserve my punishment. And Frederick the Great called for the warden. He said, you come get this guy out of here before he corrupts all these other innocent people in this prison. (laughs) Well, some people actually have that idea that I haven't done all of that much. But folks, Romans 3.23 says, all for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Guess what? All means you and me. No one is exempt All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And we mourn over the presence of sin in our lives. Next, we mourn because of the price of sin. Now, you're not going to like what I'm about to share with you, but there's a passage in the Old Testament that doesn't get much much attention these days. And and it's not usually in anybody's devotional reading. A lot of people, when they come to this passage, they just skip it or they skim over it because they really don't want to dwell on it. It's found in the book of Leviticus. And in Leviticus, God was telling the people, he was telling Israel especially, when you come to me, you're going to come to me in a certain way so that your sins can be covered for a year. Now, I'm not going to read about all the different offerings, and there were different animals that could be uh, offered depending on the situation that you were in or the offering that you were bringing. But let me just read one of them about the burnt offering. Listen to what Leviticus says 
if this offering is a burnt offering, burnt sacrifice of the Lord, now listen carefully, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. Then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for sin. He shall kill the bull before the Lord and the priests. Aaron's sons shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood all around the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of meeting and he shall skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and lay the wood in order on the fire. Then the priest, Aaron's sons, shall lay the parts, the head, the fat in order on the wood that is on the fire upon the altar he shall wash the entrails and, and its legs with water, and the priest shall burn all on the altar as a burnt sacrifice, as an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. Leviticus 1, 3 through 9. You and I have never had to do that, and we never will have to do that. And I'll tell you why in a second. But I want you to think for a moment. God told them, I want you to bring an innocent animal without blemish and you are going to slaughter it you're going to kill it because of your sin now can you imagine what a mess that was i've skinned a lot of animals in my life it's never clean it's never is They had, to offer, they had blood on their hands. And I'm not trying to, to gross you out here. I'm just telling you that they were reminded because of their sin, this innocent animal was killed and put on the altar. There were, there were also law, um, rules about sheep, laws about dove, pigeons. You can read it. And every, they had to do this every year. And every year they were reminded, the price of my sin cost a life. It was a visual reminder. Now, we know that Jesus came, the sinless, perfect lamb, the God-man, Tempted like you and me, acquainted with our griefs, never sinned. And Jesus came for one reason, to give his life for you and me. And they didn't take Jesus' life. Don't make no mistake about it. Romans didn't kill him. The Jews didn't kill him. He gave his life for you and me. And he died on the cross in such a way that the, his, his sinless blood was shed so that the atonement for our sins was once and for all. That's why we don't sacrifice animals anymore because there's no need to cover it every year. Jesus paid it all. But you and I didn't see that. Now, we try to remind ourselves by having communion Last week we had communion. We try to remember what Jesus did. How can you remember something you didn't see? And aren't you glad? Well, you know what? I'm so glad I live in the, the age of grace because now we don't have to sacrifice any animals and, and, I, and I don't have to go through that. But you know what? When 
you think about it, we don't really think about the price of our sin, do we? I want to tell you something. Your sin and my sin, your sin, every one of the sins you've committed and will commit, every one of the sins I've committed and will commit, help put Jesus on that cross. And he died for your sin. What a heavy price. But see, we didn't see it. If somebody had saved your life out here on the loop, you had had a wreck and you were in a burning car and one of the firemen or one of the first responders jerked you out of that car, you'd forever be in their debt. But see, you and I didn't see Jesus die. So we began to take our sin not that serious. Uh, yeah, uh, Yeah, I've been forgiven of my sin. Jesus paid it all. No big deal. But once I realized the poverty of my soul, I began to feel the grief that my sin cost God. Which leads me to the third thing, the penalty of sin. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23 says. Now, Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed unto man once to die. After this is the judgment. Guess what? You all have an appointment. Don't you wish that the death angel, I don't know if there's a death angel, don't you wish that God would text you to say death's on the way for you. It'll be there Monday morning at 9 o'clock. You know, I, I've got doctor's appointments and dental appointments, and I get more texts, and I get more phone calls and I get more alerts to that. I, I put, I'm one of the people who puts it on my calendar. You don't have to remind me. In fact, I ought to call them and remind them I'm coming. <laughs> but wouldn't it be nice if God gave you a little warning? You're going to die Tuesday at 9 o'clock. Well, God has given you a warning. He said the wages of your sin is death, that you're going to die And the second death is spend eternity in hell. You've got an appointment with God. You just don't know when it is. And all three of these ladies that passed away this week, they were all different ages. But fortunately, they were ready for their appointment. You see, Romans 5, 8 says, but God. and, and, And you know what? When we are in our sin, we're spiritually bankrupt, and we are mourning over our sin, the words, but God, already begin to bring the comfort. But God demonstrated his love toward you and me that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The wages of sin is death. If somebody pays the penalty, the wage of sin, they've got to die. Your sin, my sin. Help cause Jesus to die. The penalty of sin. And, and then another reason for the mourning is the power of sin. It, bring, it makes strongholds in our lives. It, it gets a grip on us. We're con- constantly broken over our sinfulness. 
And the more you grow in the Lord and the more you realize what sin is, the harder it is for you to laugh at it. And our society is laughing at it. One of the reasons people don't respond anymore is because some preachers don't preach about sin anymore. Oh, I just want to make you feel good. I want to tell you something. You can't make anyone feel good until their sin is dealt with. Until they know Jesus. And nobody can come to Jesus until they become spiritually bankrupt and cry and mourn over their sin and realize what they're doing. And even today, there are Christians who who seem to be living in sin. It's sort of like, well, you know what? I, I know I've been saved by grace, and God doesn't really care about my sin anymore. So I know what the Bible says, but I don't. God's not as mad at sin as he used to be because of Jesus. God says, when you mourn, he doesn't leave us in our mourning. Aren't you glad God didn't leave you there with no hope? You're spiritually bankrupt. You have such regret for your sin, but God doesn't leave us there. Because you'll notice what I call the relief and rejoicing from mourning. Again, the word they or those, depending on your translation of Scripture, is emphatic. In verse 3, it says, for those who are poor in spirit, those who are bankrupt in spirit, theirs and only theirs is the kingdom of God. Same way here. Those who mourn for they and only they shall be comforted. So what does that mean? Here's some good news, folks. You've been saving up your amens. Use them now. What does it mean to be comforted? First of all, forgiveness. Interesting, the verb is passive. Greek grammarians call this the divine passive. And what that means is that the one giving the action is not specifically named, so the understanding is that it's something only God can do. It's a divine passive. They are receiving the action from God. God is the only one who can comfort us over our sin by the fact that he completely forgives us through the shed blood of Jesus. John said, if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 7 to 9. David wrote in the psalm, and notice the first word in Psalm 32, 1. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. 
Psalm 32, 1 and 2. In Psalm 34, 8, he says, The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Folks, be careful. Be careful when you're talking to children. Be careful when you're talking to anyone and say, Well, all you have to do is ask Jesus into your heart. Now, that's true, but it's not all of it. They first have to realize they're a sinner separated from God and what the penalty of sin is. You don't have to be graphic. But you help them understand that, first of all, salvation means you've been saved. From what? From my sin and from my separation from God. And I commit my life to Jesus. I believe he died on the cross. I don't just ask him into my heart. I repent of my sins. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. I ask God to forgive me. I throw myself at his mercy, and by his mercy and grace, he saves us through the faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. Happiness and the blessedness doesn't come from the morning itself. Sometimes you just have a good cry, you feel better. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying that godly mourning brings godly forgiveness, which brings God's happiness. Mourning is not merely an emotional or psychological experience that makes people feel better. It is a communion with the living, loving God who responds to his love. You've been forgiven. Have you ever offended somebody and they won't forgive you? And you've done everything that you can to try to get that forgiveness and they just won't give it to you and how it just sort of tears you up until they finally say, I forgive you. Well, sinners, all of us are sinners and we're torn up about our sin and our separation from God until God says, I forgive you. And he will. All of us in here have been plagued. We all have the same disease, sin. Another part of this blessedness is fellowship. I, they shall be comforted. Now the word comfort comes from the same word, parakaleo, it comes from the noun that's rendered comforter or helper in John 14, 6. John tells, excuse me, Jesus tells his disciples in John that he's leaving and he said, I'm going to send you another parakaleo, another comforter, which we know is the Holy Spirit. And depending on the context in which it's used, the word can refer to to being asked to come and be present somewhere or to come along someone so that you can make an appeal to him or to come along someone so that you can draw strength and support and encouragement for them. So which one does God do? All of it. He calls us to him. He asks us to come alongside him. He comes alongside of us. He is our comforter. He is our helper. He's our fellowship. 
You don't have to do this by yourself. The Holy Spirit lives in you. God's Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, gives you strength and fellowship. And folks, remember, there's a union and a communion. The union with Jesus happens when you confess your sin, when you turn from your sin and you receive Christ as your Savior. You are given a relationship with God. But there's still a communion with him. And I'm not talking about the bread and the, and the juice. I'm talking about a fellowship with him, a dynamic with him. And sin in your life will break it. You don't lose your salvation, but he breaks it. I've used this analogy before. It's the closest one I have. And all human analogies usually break down on spiritual things. But this is the best I can do. My sweet wife is here. We've been married 40 years. And I loved her the day that we got married. I didn't think I could love her anymore that day, but I love her a lot more now. We made a commitment to one another. And most, and sometimes, not most of the time, sometimes I say or do stuff that's really stupid. And I'm not unmarried. I've often wondered if my life was in danger. She may have wanted to kill me. I'm just teasing you. But, but the fellowship is not as good as it could be. Until I say I'm sorry. And admit I was wrong. And the makeup time's real good. <laughs> but see, the, the union between Laura and me has never been broken. But the fellowship can be. Some of you have given your life to Jesus a long time ago, but because of your nonchalant, non-serious attitude about sin, you've allowed a lot of sin to come in and sort of mess up that union with God. God still loves you, but God takes your sin just as seriously as he did before you were saved. He hadn't changed his attitude about it. So, yeah, when you violate Scripture, it is sin. Christians, a lot of people who call themselves Christians today, they don't think anything about violating what Jesus said was sacred. Don't, he, they don't think anything about it. There's no mourning over their sin. It's no big deal. I'm saved by grace. I'm going to heaven. What's the big deal? It's a big deal to God. And he said, you're not ever going to have this internal joy and, and you're not ever going to have this fulfilling walk with him until you begin to take your sin seriously. Amen. The last thing is future. It's a future tense verb, shall be comforted. And to those who are blessed, those who enjoy the special favor of God being saved, good things lie in their future. When you commit your life to Christ and you have come seeking the forgiveness of God for your sin, good things are in your future. 
But that's not true for those who aren't converted. Those aren't, that's not true for those who remain lost. Because all they've got to look forward to is the wrath of God, the judgment of God. And folks, this word shall be is, is future in the sense that the blessing comes after obedience. I come with in, I come with poor in spirit. I mourn over my sin. And God said, I'm not going to leave you comfortless. Those of you who have never received Jesus, you need to look deep. Have you really committed your life to Christ? I'm not trying to make you doubt your salvation. It's not hard. Jesus said, you come as with the faith of a child. And then there are a lot of us who are saved. When the preaching gets tough, they get going. They don't want to hear about sin anymore. Preacher, if you talk about sin, you're going to run people off. <laughs> they never were here to begin with. And I'm not being judgmental. I'm just saying, I want to tell you something. I didn't know I needed to be saved until I realized I was a sinner lost going to hell. I made all the excuses. I should have had extra credit. If anybody was partially saved before they got saved, it would have been preacher's kid. Hmm. So for those of you today who think you've been so bad that you can't come to Jesus, I've got some good news for you. You're going to come to Christ. You know that you don't have anything to offer, and God has everything to offer to you. He's got forgiveness. He has salvation. He has joy that the world didn't give you, and it won't take away. For those of you who are Christians, we need to take a serious look at the sin that's in our life. We sort of think God overlooks it. Well, you know what? I'm about 80% good. This other 20%, he's overlooking that. You know, if I was about 80% committed to my marriage, it wouldn't be doing very well. Would you bow your heads with me? An excellent exposition of Matthew 5-4 today from Pastor David Wilson, beginning with the recognition of mourning as a natural consequence of being poor in spirit. We also explored the reason for mourning, illustrating the presence, the price, the penalty, and the power of sin. And finally, we discovered both the relief and rejoicing from mourning, resulting in rewards of forgiveness, fellowship, and a faith-filled future. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. Be sure to catch our next installment of the Southcrest Live podcast. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you would like more information, to make a commitment, or to request prayer, please text the word podcast to 555-888. You can also connect with us on our Southcrest app or our website for complete worship services or to plan to visit us in person. Thanks again for listening.